You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Today we're going to take a deep dive into auction statistics. What do auction clearance rates mean? How is the data collected for these rates and how reliable is it? Why do we hear rates quoted in the media for a city and yet there is such a variation across the regions within that same city? What use is this data anyway? And when the market was falling, there was quite a bit of industry controversy around whether the reported clearance rates were released too early. The rate on a Saturday afternoon could differ substantially from that quoted on a Sunday. Why was this so? In this episode, we picked the brains of Dr Andrew Wilson, who is possibly Australia's best-known independent property economist. Andrew has qualifications in housing market economics and a lengthy career in senior research roles within industry, government and academia. He's also been appointed a housing market expert and advisor to the Australian Urban Research Infrastructure Network, which is funded by the federal government. Dr Wilson publishes his auction clearance rates on a weekly basis on LinkedIn and breaks them down into regions, which I personally think is essential if you want to start making sense of this data. We're excited to have you here today, Andrew, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you for your excitement as well. Let's hope it's justified. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it will be. You could talk the leg off an iron pot, and I thought I was chatty, so let's get stuck into it. (laughs) All right, let's go. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. Um, Thank you, Chris. I mean... Auction clearance rates, yes. the mark, everyone gets very excited yes, about them yes, and, yes. you know, they're looking out and they report on them and the consumer loves them as well. Do you think they really matter that much? And Absolutely. what about them matters so much? Well, look, there's no doubt that uh, the auction market gives us all those clearance rates. Those Saturday night clearance rates particularly give us an insight into what's happening in the marketplace. Of course, it's not generalised because we're only taking a snapshot of what is occurring on a Saturday. Uh, and really, we have to focus mainly on the big markets of Melbourne and Sydney because their proportion of sales activity through auctions is significant enough to give us an insight into the broader market mm-hmm. activity. Smaller markets such as uh, Adelaide, Brisbane, Canberra have uh, uh, a much a lower volume or proportion of auction activity to overall activity. Um, so they don't have quite the same impact, although uh, Adelaide and Canberra can give us uh, some reasonable insights into the marketplace. Uh, and there's also cultural issues to do with how auctions are treated as a marketing activity in particular capitals. In Brisbane, for example, um, we always struggle to see more than a 50% clearance rate in Brisbane. And 50% can actually be quite a positive result. But mm. uh, uh, Brisbane sellers tend to use auction as an entree into the marketplace rather than as the final activity, which, of <laughs> course, it is in Melbourne and Sydney uh, because of the costs involved. We really want to 
move that property under the hammer of a Saturday rather than yeah. have it pass in and then go to a private treaty. Mm. Um, so, look, it's horses for courses in a sense. But um, I've had this, I guess, uh, debate argument over many years <laughs> in regard to auction clearance rates. So yeah. uh, it's really something that uh, I'm quite prepared to answer, having been uh, thrust upon it uh, without any prior warning. So, look, it's all good. In fact, I had a... Uh, I had a, um, uh, back in the boom days, uh, six or seven years ago, when we started to get those very strong clearance rates, uh, particularly in Sydney, there was, of course, this issue that perhaps those, uh, uh, what it was, 80% clearance rates were, yep. were pushing the market. They were actually validating and creating a, a an energy of themselves mm. just because of the results. So yeah. there was a lot of scrutiny over the collection and the methodology used in clearance rates. Mm. Um, so I can explain all that if yep. you're ready in well, detail. It's this is quite great uh, actually because there's also a number of different sources of clearance rate right. data. So um, you got to use the same source all the time, obviously. Yeah. Otherwise, it's sort of it's all corrupted. But we'd love to know exactly what yeah. goes into it. Well, look, uh, that was my role. Uh, when I was with Domain as Chief Economist, that was one of my roles, um, was to, I guess, uh, manage the auction clearance rate, particularly the market insights into that. Um, now, what would happen then if we had a team uh, in Domain, as uh, uh, CoreLogic um, has, of course, uh, that would uh, pick up the phones of a Saturday and start ringing around agents to get mm. results, or agents mm. would ring in. Yep. Um, now, we had a, a timeline which we would set at around about six o'clock to, to close off all results. Yeah. Um, now, I had a rule with uh, with Domain that I wouldn't uh, report. We, we needed to have six, around about 60% of the of listings reported, that is, listings on the day reported, to get right, a yep. robust result. Mm. Now, once you start getting below 50% of the actual volume of stock that's, that's up for sale yep. by auction on a Saturday, it becomes less reliable uh, in terms of modelling the data. Which leads an interesting question because does that mean that, say, in a slower market, agents are less likely to answer Absolutely. the phone or pick up the phone? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is uh, – and now what I did was because we had this issue so, – so the first point is you need to have – enough results yep. to give you a robust methodological mm. approach to auction clearance mm. rates. Now, being an old econometrician, and uh, I used to teach that particular subject, it's something I am very aware of mm. to, to make sure we have a robust methodology whenever we're reporting any yep. statistical model. So um, we would, I would insist of, of looking at around about 60% before I would report with any you know, sort of strength of uh, validity on uh, the clearance rate. So um, that would close off at around 6 o'clock and we normally would get that um, uh, result. Now, we had media commitments. That's why the 6 o'clock close-off was there yeah. because mm. the next day it had to be reported. There were deadlines for the particular Fairfax publications to get those results in. Yeah. Um, but uh, so the, the issue then was that we would have what I would call the weekend clearance rate. Now, the weekend clearance rate was that 50 to 60% plus of the volume of properties put under the hammer on a Saturday reported, yep. um, and then you come out with that particular clearance rate based on those basic you know, measures and fundamentals. Mm. So that would include properties that had sold prior to auction? Yeah, yeah. Properties so it was, that sold actually yes. under the hammer and also those that negotiated afterwards before 6 o'clock um, and those had been withdrawn and those yeah. had passed in. So whatever, whatever the property was listed for auction on that day, it was mm. a result for that property passed yeah. in, sold yep. before, sold at auction. Um, and, and ones before go into the clearance rate as in Yes, that's right, yeah. because they were listed for auction on that day. So, yeah. um, uh, That's a good point just there for our listeners because it might look like it was a competitive auction and it was 
yeah. sold at auction. Yeah. But the reality is it could have been sold a week before That's the right. auction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reality is if it's sold a week before the auction, you would think that that was under competition. But a lot of the time that's not under competition. Yeah. And, it's and actually just one buyer. Yeah, and, and market forces can generate that in, in yeah. a very strong market. The incentive is for the buyer to try to secure the property prior to the auction because they want to get out of the competition loop on the day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in a very weak market, the seller might think, I'm, I'm, I need to, I've got a sale potentially here. I'm not going to take the risk of going to yeah. auction and having it passed in. So it can depend on market dynamics to some degree. So the weekend clearance rate, and this was the issue, is you already mentioned it, Veronica, was that we had these, the duality of results. So the weekend clearance rate was a fixed methodology, a methodological approach which closed at 6 o'clock. It had to have a particular volume of results, which yep. was, was just about always uh, gained. Uh, and then that was the end of the ball game. Now, of course, as the market, uh, as results come in, uh, over the following week, you get more results uh, as the days progress. Mm. Now, we used to close the results off uh, on a Wednesday. So by Wednesday, it was like that was it. Mm. Um, and, of course, by then you had probably around 90% of your results. Yeah, okay. So you've gone from 50 60% yeah. to around 90%. Now, of course, the clearance rate changes mm. because you've got this higher volume of results. Yeah. Um, so Were you, you finding that it was a massive change? No. Yeah. What typically happened, Chris, was that it was around about a 2% change in the clearance rate. Uh, and that's quite easily explained because, yep. of course, on the Saturday, uh, auctions are very – it's a competition on in front of the property. Mm-hmm. And it's also a competition with the agent to be successful. <laughs> now, you like to celebrate your success and you're not that keen, particularly uh, close to the event of uh, – you know, yeah. promoting your failure, Brady which is, uh, yeah, so you didn't sell. <laughs> you so you always off for midnight because in New South Wales, you got till midnight uh, to sell under auction conditions. Yeah. So you might be holding off. So mm. what happens, of <laughs> course, is that, you know, agents are more inclined to report sales rather yes, than passed in non-sales. Mm. There's a bias. Mm. And that bias is revealed in that following four or five days mm. to when you get the so full result. So is it results. always adjusted down? Always adjusted always. down. Always. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah. So you always get that duality mm. or those two results where the, the auction clearance rate is lower as more results come in because of that very clear human, I guess, element of what? celebrating success and not being as keen to celebrate a, f- a perceived failure. Yeah, Even it makes if the prop- perfect sense. Yeah, and mm. these, of course, are properties that uh, uh, are sold on the day, so any sale after that isn't counted in, in the clearance rate in a sense because it's on the yeah. day because yeah. they've been passed in mm. and it becomes a private sale. So this is the reason why, and, of course, I've had this debate in yeah. media and I was accused on the, was a 7.30 report who, you know, were actually a little nasty about it and didn't think about, you know, and, and the, the actual implications that this is actually a methodological yeah. I, uh, issue rather than an issue of trying to hide the results because you want to give a more positive result on a Saturday. Yeah. So, um, well, so mean, that's I'd... the first thing. That's about the data collection point. And it yeah. is always that, it's, uh, that clearance rates are lower at the end of the week. So yeah. I always used to, the, the way I, I, and even, you know, within Domain and Fairfax, there was always this like, you know, we don't understand. I'm not sure it's that difficult to sort of decipher. No, it's simple. Really. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> it was like, so I used to insist mm. that we called the Saturday night clearance rate the weekend clearance rate. Right. So it's basically the weekend clearance rate. And the point is we, and I said, I, I was mm. really quite adamant that we don't publish a clearance rate other than the weekend clearance rate. Yeah. Right? Because it only uh, adds to the confusion of this two-paced market that clearance rates are different in the middle of the week 
uh, as to what they are on a Saturday. But of course, you know, we, we had this, we had to do it to reveal it. So I had to go through this explanation process mm. to people saying, well, it's because we get more yeah. positive results on a Saturday and, and we don't get the full results, which include the ones that weren't uh, perhaps happy to publish a past in on the Saturday. Um, so you get that couple of percent bias going downwards. So, but anyway, but that's not a said, big deal. Two or two or three percent. If it no, was no, a no, big it was only 10, 20, yeah, yeah, 30 yeah, no, percent no. drop, you'd be a bit up, you know, upset well, about I, that. I'm, cu- I'm curious though, because okay, so as long as you record, as long as you're measuring the same one exactly. every week, it's all about the relativity of one week exactly. to another, right? So that's yeah. just a barometer, basically. Yeah, but I am interested to know whether that adjustment down is larger or smaller depending on market conditions, such as in a booming market is the adjustment down yeah. 2 or 3%. In a falling market is the adjustment down 5 or 6%. Well, it's, it's basically the same. Is and it? Because, okay, so it's pretty much Because uniform. it's only a minor adjustment, mm. it, it, it only changes at the margin. Yeah. Mm. Because obviously you'll get a, uh, you know, the more success in a, uh, on a uh, uh, higher market where there's more sales mm. happening than on a lower market where there's more passings. But see, that's irrelevant because mm. we're talking about the wrong things here because mm. all we should be saying is how robust is your weekend clearance mm. rate, your Saturday yeah. clearance rate? Is it consistent, the yeah. methodological approach? Yes, it is. Mm. Uh, we only report once we get to a certain threshold of results, yeah. which is was usually there. Um, and we don't – what happens next is a completely different model – so what we have to do is yeah. never compare the Saturday result with the midweek yep. result yeah. because that's apples and oranges. <laughs> but it's the media, too... I did notice, in the recent downturn, were more inclined to report the, the adjusted result than the weekend result. And then when the market starts turning again, they suddenly start reporting the weekend result yeah, again. Yeah, well, you know, I'm <laughs> not sure that the media have uh, particularly covered themselves in glory over the last 12 months <laughs> no. in terms of their reporting of the mm. property market yep. and their various nonsensical predictions. But, look, it's not so much the media. It's those that uh, the media use to, uh, you know, yep. for opinions and yeah. are clearly wrong. And I think, I think that's the issue with our property market is just the uh, the volume of misinformation that uh, and those that provide that misinformation and, and are clearly proven to be wrong. Mm. There doesn't seem to be any accountability in terms of um, them fronting up the next day with just another hocus pocus <laughs> type of prediction, and uh, on we all go. And of course, the media are happy for that because it's just it's you know traditional clickbait. clickbait. That's clickbait. right. We'll have to get you to comment on on next year's fool or forecaster report. We started it this year on April Fool's Day. We're, every year we're releasing yeah. a fool or forecaster report, and we're going to we highlight some of those more ridiculous predictions that we've seen in the previous twelve months. So, in so auctions, down, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's like, there's perma bears and perma bulls with the property market. And well, that's they're perma idiots because, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Neither does that. But, I mean, it's, it's hard to kind of for a lot of people to stay in the middle and be quite balanced. But a lot of people, when they look at auction clearance rates yeah. at the moment in the perma bull camp, are saying it's off a very low base, there's very low volume. Well, that's irrelevant. And, and can you explain why that's un- irrelevant? Mm. To, well, because we don't know the depth of buyer activity. And actually it's not a low base because last weekend – we had over 150 more properties auctioned in Sydney than the same weekend last year. Mm. And Melbourne auction numbers are now very close to where they were a year ago mm. as well. So listings are rising. That's no surprise because yeah. prices are rising. You've got to understand that what listings are of a Saturday is reflecting decisions that are made around about six weeks ago. Mm. Now, six weeks ago, we were still, uh, is it a recovery, is it not? Now, there's quite clear, uh, you know, uh, obviously the market is rising in Sydney and Melbourne and Canberra. Prices are growing at a very strong rate. 
Um, clearance rates are, are, are maintaining just under 80% in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, so the market's regained a lot of its confidence. Now, sellers are back in the market, but traditionally they move. We get higher numbers of sellers in November and December anyway. And that, yep. that tends to push down clearance rates. And we're seeing a little bit of that, particularly in the Melbourne markets, mm-hmm. just easing slightly. Um, but we've tested by depth over the last two or three weekends and we've still had quite strong clearance yep. rates. Yep. So the nonsense about, you know, listings are low mm. is not an argument that's valid because we haven't tested the buyer depth. Yeah. Well, until now we have and we're still getting those strong clearance rates. And that's a hard thing to measure. You can measure how many listings there are. You can measure how many properties are sold, um, and they're two different two different figures, of course. Yeah. Um, but you can't really measure how many buyers are out there. Well, until we get results of a Saturday, mm. and that's what's telling us then, at the point in how many. No, well, it doesn't. There. It doesn't yeah. until those clearance rates start to fall, and maybe mm. that's what we're seeing in Melbourne to a slight degree. That as numbers have pushed up, of course, we had a very big Super Saturday weekend. In Melbourne, mm. three weekends ago, fourteen hundred auctions, Ooh, that's which was huge. well, it is, and it wasn't yeah. far below the year before, which was around fourteen hundred and fifty. So it mm. was it was the first sign that listings were picking up that mm. Super Saturday, um, and the Cup Day listings for the Cup Weekend uh, listings in Melbourne were also quite reasonable. They were higher than the the weekend, but the, the same weekend last year. And of course, it's a holiday weekend, so you take that with a grain mm. of salt. But it was again an, another reasonable weekend in Melbourne last weekend, just under a thousand. And auctions, and um, uh, as I said, but we're now Melbourne. starting to see those clearance rates just ease a little bit, and it might mm. be a sign that the buyer depth isn't there as it's starting mm. to thin out with those much higher volumes of mm. properties coming in. But the other point is that the Sydney market is actually continuing at I high know. levels, just under eighty, and there were big numbers of auctions in yes. Sydney last weekend, mm. well above a year ago. So the Sydney market certainly is the hot market in terms of its buyer depth being tested and passing at the same clearance rates as we've had for most of spring. So uh, mm. whereas Melbourne's a little bit different, but a lot more auctions in Melbourne. And Melbourne's a little bit two-paced as well, uh, in a sense that the eastern suburbs in Melbourne are very, very strong, yep. uh, particularly the outer east, which is the sort of mid-price range aspirational market, whereas the western suburbs and northern suburbs aren't quite as strong. But markets move in waves. West of the north were very strong last year, uh, and the east, the outer east was actually quite weak. So they're sort of in catch-up mode. Uh, which is the, the whole general nature of the market at the moment, which we can sort of discuss later. But certainly auction yeah. clearance rates, when we track, uh, and always as part of my presentations when I'm looking at Melbourne and Sydney, I show the auction clearance rates. You can quite clearly see the rise in the market mm. from the beginning of this year, actually, yes. in auction clearance rates. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and then when you track them against prices, it's a clear match between rising auction clearance rates and rising prices and the reverse falling clearance rates and falling yeah. prices. And I think it's really for those in the market marketplace, particularly Melbourne and Sydney, it's instructional to be able to look at those clearance rates because it does give you a, a, a very reliable insight into what's happening in the market. Now, we're talking about the weekend clearance rates here yes. and make sure you compare weekend with weekend, yeah. but I publish that uh, anyway as a series. Mm. Uh, and as I said, I think it's uh, there's no doubt that there's a clear correlation um, between the, the change in clearance rates mm. and the change in prices. And, and in terms of the market, you know, clearance rates ended last year at record lows in Melbourne and Sydney. They were around 40%, which was really quite sobering. Yeah. But that was a crisis in confidence that was created by all the doomsayer nonsense that infected us uh, through September, October, November. And buyers just said, well, I've had enough. And we actually had a buyer strike 
at mm. the end of last year. Mm. So that's why clearance rates were, were down so low. And I mean, with predictions, silly predictions of up to 40% falls in prices this year, well, you'd be nuts to be buying in that well, market. Well, we had a selling and well, strike as you, well, obviously. You probably committed yourself to a sale. And that's the point. Some mm. people have to sell. Mm. You know, that's why prices fell dramatically at the end of last year, because mm. people are committed, particularly end of year selling environment, because people have made arrangements to move into state or get another property or retire or divorce or sadly yep. death. These issues are unavoidable in mm. terms of having to go into the market. And if there are no buyers out there and you have to sell, you've just got to take what the market's offering. Yep. And that's why we did see a, a sharp fall in prices over the December quarter and those clearance rates at 40%. But you know what's really interesting? We actually saw the market come back early. I mean, a lot, there's a lot of chat, of course, about why the market has picked up. Mm. And there's no doubt that lower interest rates are the clear driver. And that's the other thing we should always look yep. at in terms of market dynamics is mm. the relationship between interest rates and house prices, which is, again, a clear correlation. Yep. Yep. But we did see the market come come back uh, before the re-election of the Morrison government and before those interest rates were cut. In fact, uh, clearance rates were tracking above 60% uh, in February and March uh, and into April. And that was because the, always those issues to do with confidence and fear uh, are always a short-term driver of the market. Once people sort of realise that, well, hey, this is the world hasn't uh, ended. Mm. Um, you know, I've got a, you know, I need a bigger house, a smaller mm. house. I'm going to the beach, the bush. Mm. These sort of agendas are more granular and important to buyers and sellers than uh, the fear factor that's sort of generated in the did, in the media. I did some research, which is not on, on clearance rates, but actually I pulled a whole bunch of properties that had sold in the lead up to the peak, so in the 12 months up to the peak, and then it on-sold in the two, sorry, in the 18 months up to the peak, and then it on-sold uh, within, yep. I can't remember now, my dates, it was either two years up and 18 months after. But anyway, you could I could clearly see that the amount of loss, the percentage of loss, uh, had actually stopped at December. Yeah. And you could clearly see mm. in that data that, that we were past the bottom yeah, behind yeah. us. And we didn't see that reflected in actual median price that's data, right. which because is that's backward issue. looking. Exactly right. right yeah. And that's the point. I have mm. a different methodology that I'm soon to introduce, stay Ooh, tuned, uh, right. in terms of price measurement. Mm. And it doesn't rely on sales. It's about listings, which is the international standard anyway. Listings data is used by most other similar advanced economies in terms of uh, looking at prices, not sale prices because they tend to be backward-looking. Yeah. So what forward-looking indicators are you looking for? Obviously auction clearance auction rates. Clearance rates but yeah. what other things are you – gets you excited about where prices are going? Well, auction clearance rates are really the only factor that we have that is a real-time insight into mm. the market. Now, it, it's not perfect. It's incomplete because – it's about real listings, though, I guess, with yeah, agents and... Yeah, yeah, well, listing volumes, are, are, but they can reflect uh, issues to do with higher or lower uh, buyer activity in the mm. marketplace because, you know, you can get the greed factor in a hot market and then, of course, there are no buyers in a cold market. Yeah. So you can have more listings... Uh, you know, in the marketplace because of those factors. That's sort of about days on market too, though, isn't it? So That's right. Yeah. yeah. So about um, like applications for credit, like pre-approvals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, the the point with the auction clearance rate data is that it's it's a Saturday game day result. Mm. It's happening in real time. We can look at the number of listings, which is important, not comparing them perhaps to the previous weekend, but certainly to the year before, because there's yeah. a lot of seasonality in auction uh, methodology. Mm. 
be, and, and that seasonality can change from year to year. We get different Easter's, we get different public yep. holidays, we get different school holidays. As it can mean that it can change even on a year to year basis, mm. but it's best to compare on that year to year basis. And it's quite interesting when you do see the listing trends compared year on year, how they, they change at the same level. Our yeah. listings are down, you know, were down around uh, 25% in Melbourne and Sydney. And that was quite consistent comparing weekend to weekend with those types of reductions. Um, but, you know, they're certainly picking up now to that same level. You understand that it was a quieter market at the end of the last year anyway. But but still, it, the auction clearance rate is, um, you know, is is our, view, our uh, window into what buyers and sellers are thinking of, not just the clearance rate, but also the number of properties that are being listed, even though that is a six-week decision that's happened six weeks ago. There's also the reserve price because that's another factor, isn't it? I mean, there's how many buyers are out there, how many properties are on the market. But that's not necessarily disclosed though, and that's the problem. So we can, can, the the, the thing about the auction clearance rate. is whether vendors are meeting the market or not. Yeah, again, we don't have that Mm. data to be able. There is a little bit, you know, only a little bit. But asking prices give us the same scenario, and that's what I use or will be introducing soon is a very robust asking price methodology. How can you do that when auction properties don't have an asking price. Yes, they do. We have to have an asking price. We have to have a range of prices offered now legislation. Yeah, in. but they don't have to publish them or... or um, uh, they do have to publish them. Yeah, you have to have... It's only in Queensland you, where you don't have to publish the... Uh, you don't have to disclose your reserve price. They don't have to disclose price. in New South Wales. Yeah, you I have to have... Uh, agents in, have to... Ha, agents have to have a range of... Uh, in terms yeah, of property, that's legislated now, Veronica, yeah, no, and no, that no, makes no. it very easy for those that are doing asking price models. Yeah. Where, where are you getting their range? Because their range is on their agency agreement. They have a choice. They can actually choose not to quote. Well, most of them will quote it. And I think that- So you're uh, using the ones the absolutely. most. Right. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And I think um, the- Victoria's gra- good. But the vast majority do quote it. Um, mm. So, uh, but again, you know, in, in oh, but a lot of them would say just auction guide, call us. Yeah, that's right. But uh, the but guide the problem but because is with your methodology there is though most of those that don't quote are those that have actually overpriced it. <laughs> but they're not allowed to overprice. They have oh, to be yeah, within a that... margin, and or else they're, there's legislative <laughs> sanctions can. now against yeah, overquoting. Yeah, I know, but I'm an agent. I understand. Yeah, how but you're agents, a buyer's agent, I'm so you're a buyer's buyer's agent. No, I was a seller's agent. I sold for six years. So yeah, so well, I'm... the legislation has changed since then. I and know there's a mo- lot, lot more. There's a <laughs> lot more. You're assuming that they actually all follow legislation to the letter. The legislation well, is written you, by people. You're revealing. Could you name names here, Veronica? The legislation. The government would like to hear this by people who don't fully understand how agents Well, it should operate. never have been written in the first place because I'm <laughs> actually an old agent as well. Mm. And uh, the whole purpose of an auction <laughs> is to have a non-disclosed price because the seller, sh- the buyer should set the price, mm. not the seller, right? The seller, that should always be, you know, not revealed. But of yeah, course, yeah. during the boom, there was political pressure because of this perceived uh, over-quoting, uh, under-quoting, sorry, the perceived under-quoting mm. um, that uh, there needed to be some sort of, and that was just a cover for people who were missing out on auctions and that was the blame game on the agent because yeah. they weren't uh, giving them the right guide in terms of what yeah. the property would bring. To but it honest, was just strong competition. But that's they, prolific now. I mean, end of the day, the whole agents, it's very easy for an agent to put a price guide on and come up with some comparables that are, you know, maybe in May, Maybe in June the market might have moved 5%, 10% yeah. from there. No, I got- think there's significant sanctions in terms of being able to validate your asking price in terms. But when we're talking about auctions. <laughs> it's but true, but in practical But in sense, Sydney it's, we're talking about you, 25% of the let market. Let me give you a scenario, and this is why it's dangerous, right? So agent does an appraisal in May, yeah. right? Prices it in May. In all, you know, hand on heart, good faith, based on recent comparables, Prices it in May. Vendor needs to polish the floorboards, paint, 
uh, get some new blinds in, get the landscaping and gardens in. They go, oh, you know, might as well wait. It's winter. We might as well wait. Weather will be a little bit better in September. Market has changed from May to September. Well, wouldn't you get another appraisal? They don't. Well, that's buy beware or sell beware, isn't right it? Now that, no, but it's, it's you beware yeah, but, if you're relying on that data. <laughs> yeah, but look, we're, we're talking about individual circumstances here. Mm. What, what you lot, need to though. do? Well, okay. Well, that's it happens a lot. <laughs> I'll take your word for it, Veronica. I'm sure you know better than I. But uh, when you're looking at models of the market, you use aggregated data, and aggregated data obviously yeah. becomes less reliable as the more granular you get. Yeah, yeah. Now we can't look at an individual property's estimate. Um, in isolation from what's happening in the suburb, the region, mm. the LGA or the capital city. Mm. But once you do aggregate that data, it you can get very, uh, you certainly get accurate and robust results in terms of not just where the median is situated, but also the change in the median from period to period. And as I said, this is a methodology that's used almost exclusively mm. in other markets and mm. that is listing, and is uh, it, asking is it prices. pulled off the portals, is it? Yeah. Okay, so that's that's well, it's agents' information. It's published. It's it's you know as Mm. I said, the the thing with listings data is that people don't make mistakes with their listings data. You know, the problem with a lot of the uh, not a lot, but certainly, and I used to of course run at APM all the methodological, uh, all our uh, price models, um, and that was something that I had responsibility for. And we use the same price models that uh, are standard in the market. CoreLogic uh, Price Finder use these models, of course, which is based on uh, official uh, value of general data. Mm. But the, the value of general data, uh, you know, its problem was it's backdated. Mm. We don't get uh, – we never used to get our full results for up to nine months from sale dates. So, And that's why yep. there were always revisions, which was the bane of my existence when I'd go to market with – People say, well, that's different from the one you did the last quarter. I said, well, yeah, because we've got a higher volume of observations and that sort of, again, like auction clearance rates, look at you like, oh, yeah, right, shifty. Um, So just on that though, because a lot of listeners wouldn't understand the process of how you can go price undisclosed and how long that takes to actually be disclosed and how, how do you actually protect the sale price from getting out there and... Do you know much about how that works? And I guess well, all, all because it's uh, you have to pay stamp duty on all of your transactions. Yep. Of course, it's that's the government's key motivation for gathering the data. And obviously, mm. there are other motivations, but you know they have to record the price. And this is you know uh, under most circumstances uh, available that those that information. Mm. Um, you know, three months down the track. Well, that's right. Mm. But but once it's once it goes through the, the process of um, being settled. And then, you know, it becomes then registered by the value of general gets mm. hold of the data through the stamp duty process. Then that becomes a record, uh, yep. which then is sold to those that want it, such as uh, you know, CoreLogic <laughs> or PriceFinder, so which first... they create their models. But there's not – one of the issues that I used to have, firstly, was an incomplete data set, yep. which meant that you'd revise your data uh, because you'd obviously get more uh, properties that were sold coming through. Uh, as time progresses, because it could be up to nine months to get the full data set. But usually the revisions were, were sort of minor from quarter to quarter, but they were still revisions. The other thing is was, was the data was wrong. A lot of the, the data <laughs> was is, actually wrong. Is that because the it's price. recorded by agents? No, happened, no, no, what? it's recorded by – well, the yeah, agents have to office. be – no, it's reco- people who are putting it into the database. Right. It's, it's like typo. 1,450,000. <laughs> know, and you have no idea how many noughts were either added or missing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and look, you can understand. dollars sales. Yeah, because yeah, um, I used to – you know, the journos would ask me, well, could you give us the highest price for this particular suburb? And that mm. was, oh, no. Uh, in the end, I wouldn't do it because um, <laughs> uh, you come. It's it's you know perhaps it's yeah. um, 
you know, Blacktown or something, and nothing against Blacktown, but it would be here's a property that's sold for $14 million, right? <laughs> well, actually, it was 1.4. So I'd have to do yeah. the uh, Google search, you know, to try and find that. In the end, I said, no, look, you just do the Google search to, and I'll give you the top 10 and you find. And it was usually we had to go through – you know, you, you'd find a lot of non, you know, uh, delinquent oh, entries yeah. when you're only looking at a particular suburb. Now, those things, when you're aggregating the data, putting it all together, tend to wash Smooth themselves out. Yes. out. So it's sort of Just irrelevant. Simply, yeah. But it was also at the other end, you'd sort of look for the top price in Point Piper. And, and here's a property that sold for 1.4 million, right? Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> or there were, you know, it's houses that, <laughs> or there were factories that were reported as houses and, you know, oh, dental surgeries, you know, still that sort of stuff. That. Now, I'm not having, it's just when you've got thousands and thousands of properties that have to be hand entered mm. into the database, there's always that capacity for human error. And as I said, it didn't really matter because it, it would it's wash enough. its way through. Yeah. Uh, when it was aggregated, when you're looking at media, used to always rely on old data. I mean, when I first started in real estate, we had RP data that was it, and it was always at least three months old because you had to wait for it to come through the LTO yeah, yeah. before it went yeah, to there. Yeah. And then Price Finder came out and started ringing up agents every Saturday afternoon for results, and yeah, it was yeah. like all of a sudden you got you got oh, I know what that sold last week. Yeah, yeah. Um, it changed everything. Yeah, and see, this is the this is the advantage for asking price data is there are no mistakes. Because the last thing you do as a seller is, is put, put a wrong zero. thing, an extra zero. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? What are you doing? Or you, you leave hilarious. a zero off and the phone doesn't stop ringing, you know, because you uh, we'll buy yeah. that. Yeah. So I'll it's very accurate data. It covers the whole of the population of properties for sale at any given uh, point of time. Except the off-market. Yeah, but that's only a minor. And uh, again, agents are telling me that well, twenty to thirty percent are selling off. We market keep hearing these agents telling these agents story. I mean, it's agents would know. I agree, but uh, <laughs> that's why I'm the independent voice of the industry because <laughs> yeah. I look at both sides from a uh, an objective point of view. Hopefully. So the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. Well, what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. We are in short termism and, you know, we'll flick open the paper today and um, your mate Louis Christopher is uh, making some big, rec- uh, big you know, estimates. On is where it today, as in literally today? Yeah. I, I should you know, just say a... we're recording this middle of November. We'll endeavour to get it out there as soon as possible, but uh, well, he's, this might be a little out of date. He's coming on to talk about it in a few weeks. But, you know, I guess, you know, there, a lot of people are looking for insights on where the market has gone in the last three to six months and where's it going in the next three mm. to six months. And what you're kind of saying here is that, you know, the lag on that data could be at least nine, up to nine months from when it actually saw, sells till it's actually affected into the. Okay. So we'll start looking at the big picture now. So yeah. let's, and perhaps that's my role. I mean, I am an economist. Mm. Uh, I'm a macroeconomist, mm. all qualifications and stuff like that. I have a PhD actually in economics, so mm. it's it's Dr. Andrew. That's Wilson. right. So I'm not sort of you know, hey, I'm great, but at least I have some support well, for my, I guess, point of view, which isn't a point of view; it's actually an analytical yep. statement. Mm. So the words "boom" and "bust" will leave our lexicon in terms of the housing market activity 
into the near future. In fact, thankfully, I think we won't hear those words for a long, long time. Oh, good. So perhaps some people who use that as a uh, ticket into the market and for attention might have to think of rebranding or of another particular <laughs> uh, descriptor for their product because the boom and bust era has clearly finished mm. in our housing mm. markets. Um, yeah, we don't have 12-year cycles anymore, do we? We'd, well, we should never, again, we should never look backwards to understand what's going in, mm. and this is why... Um, but mining yeah. towns, is that a boom and a bust? Well, yeah. Well, look, small towns can obviously suffer from economic shocks positively mm. or, or negatively. And, of course, we shouldn't be talking about that as being a housing market. It's a different environment, of course. Yeah. And what we're really focusing on is the big picture, mm. which are large capital city markets, particularly and regional markets, which follow the capital city energy. But what about the apartment markets in these? I mean, yeah. you're talking about the... Uh, Same you, thing. It's hard to say that the Perth market hasn't gone through a bust when it's down... It's lower now than it was in 2006. Yeah, absolutely. But we're talking into the future now. And the key point is that the drivers of the housing market, particularly interest rates, and it's interest rates that create that uh, roller coaster ride mm. that we've had, the wave effect. And we really haven't had a rest from changes in interest rates for 30 years since they were officially, since the um, you know the Reserve Bank officially became the objective uh, supplier of interest rates away from the government, um, thanks to Mr Keating. But... Um, uh, we're now entering a period where that energy uh, resource for house prices, interest rates, are off the table. We're talking when, about going down to half a percent. Well, the, the point is not where they're going down to. It's where they won't go up to. And we are not going to have a rise in interest rates. I don't want to say ever, but uh, that would be silly. But uh, I think short of a significant currency crisis, there's just no argument for higher interest rates. And those that uh, promote... Uh, you know, what if interest rates rise? So, well, okay, that's fine to say that, but that's a cause. Let's oh, That's an effect. Talk about the cause. What mm. are the circumstances under which we would see higher interest yeah. rates? Yeah. Come on, tell me. Because mm. at the moment we are lower and lower and to the point where we're hopefully not headed to zero where everybody else has been, mm. which will have no material effect on the economy, certainly no positive effect on the economy. And that means there's no energy to create prices growth going forward uh, because there's they no get to zero. To and when there's mm. no uh, energy to economic circumstance where we can put up rates, and that would be great news because it would mean we'd have inflation mm. back at 3 to 4%, wages would be growing at 3 to 4%, we'd have a GDP growing at 3 to 4% instead of, you know, 1% at the moment, um, which is very concerning, and unemployment rising. You know, the future is very vexed in terms of returning to the type of economic prosperity that we've had over the last three generations, uh, not just in this country, but mm. globally as well. And that's was... why we're getting those social and uh, political uh, disturbances, uh, a reflection yeah. of the lack of prosperity that we now have in, uh, in global norm. advanced economies. That's right. And we should have, yeah. Reserve Bank, and I, you know, I don't spank them too hard, but they should have realised that we weren't immune from what was happening overseas. Well, Warren but, Hogan talked about that back in, I can't remember what episode, but yeah, he talks, so we just need to get used to... Well, he's jumped on no, the interest rates no down bandwagon after being on the interest rates up bandwagon <laughs> like all the other banking luminaries were for many years. But of course, they have a vested interest in higher interest rates. We should understand that. But um, as I said, the, the point to the boom and bust environment is that it's gone, it's mm. finished. Because once we get to zero, yep. what we're seeing now is just the end of the catch-up mode in Sydney and Melbourne, particularly from the downturn yep. of last year. Mm. And within the next six months, prices will be back to their peak points. And then that's what we will see revealed is the lack of energy in the drivers of house yep. prices. That's either incomes growth, 
or changes to interest rates that will flatten out prices growth. I mean, house prices aren't set by a committee. You know, there's not a magic box out there or yep. a genie. There's lamp, you know, the house price genie I mean, that decides true. it's going up or down. It's the but it's availability of credit as well. Well, that's the same thing yeah. as, as as interest rate mm. scenarios, and this mm. is why it's it's going to be even harder because we have this ridiculous banking environment where banks announced uh, last week, of course, ANZ and NAB some really sobering results in yep. terms of profit declines. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at that because we still have Mission. lending this year's 20% generally down from where it was the same period last year, first nine yep. months of this year. So mm. obviously the volumes of loans are well behind. That means lower profits for banks. And yet you would have thought that that would have encouraged banks to be lending more, but they're in this almost schizophrenic mindset of saying, well, we know we need to lend more. Our shareholders are, are really edgy out there, um, but we're too frightened to lend because we've been talked into this highly risk. Money aver- at the moment. But we're yeah, talked into you know. this highly risk uh, averse, this risk management crisis mm. that's infected the banks and they're too frightened to move in back into the marketplace despite the fact that we've never had a period in our history where we've had a crash in house prices. You know, in, particularly in the modern era, since we've had you know uh, market-driven interest rates, and uh, this is, and yet oh, we were sucked into this so APRA what, we're nonsense. Still forty percent overvalued, aren't we, Andrew? Uh, well, how can we be overvalued? <laughs> I mean, if a bank will only lend you eighty percent of the value of a property, will only let you repay twenty-five <laughs> percent of your well, <laughs> let you repay twenty-five percent mm. of your income. How can those measurement uh, constraints or those lending constraints have any uh, excessive value? Now, if you're in America <coughs> where there aren't those limits mm. or they weren't, certainly that can mean overvaluation in the marketplace. But the value is just what somebody's prepared to pay for a property and what they're prepared to pay is bounded by the rules that they have for lending, which are the strictest, you know, are, are strict in this country because of all that market power that banks have. And I think the market power of the banks has actually worked against them now because they don't have the flexibility through competition to be able to realise they've got to get back into the marketplace or their profits are going to continue to fall. Now, I think it was ANZ last week actually fell below their baseline cover for their loan book. I think yeah, it's about $10.3 billion. The reason for that is ANZ offshored all their um, back office and, you know, bearing in mind 60% of loans are coming through brokers now and brokers have to choose a bank. And so... They don't want to pick A and Z because the whole process is A, ridiculously lengthy, B, with the, the assessor we're getting is not very well trained and they're coming back. And so brokers have just shut up shop on A and Z. Okay. So, and then, I mean, they're all the banks actually want to lend. Like, so, you know, you go through the banks, they're all wanting to do it. The problem is now brokers aren't sending money to the big four. They're going to, Macquarie's credit grows 20%. Mm. They're, they've grown the bill. ING, you know, non-banks, it's just, they're not going to the big four. They're going But elsewhere. we've still got total lending down significantly this year compared to last year. And the latest uh, That's not uh, a supply problem. That's a demand problem. It's consumers have only just now started going to brokers. Well, we go- don't know that for sure, do we? I mean, really, because we've got plenty of volume in terms of demand if we look at those auction markets. I mean, buyers are back in town, the same numbers. I mean, uh, but turnovers. But listing numbers are much lower. So there's only so many. Well, much lower now. I mean, we're still tracking now, as I said, at back towards the levels that we had a year ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's sort of like the blame game. Who's to blame here? Whatever. But I think that there's still clearly a trepidation in the lending environment, the finance industry, to lend to investors. 
Um, investors should be coming back into the market now with the strongest price growth we've seen in years in Melbourne and Sydney. Good opportunity to get into the market, particularly I when say that's about three months ago. Because now, yeah, now the you should have bought uh, two years ago. You know the well, we always say that, don't yeah. we? When the APRA changes came through, you know, yeah. um, the also the the caps on investor lending got removed. When those two things happened, the banks are basically, and now the pricing, if you see with the RBA rate cuts over the last, you know, three months or whatever it is, they're passed on all the interest only investment. So they're trying to encourage investors to come back. The problem is the investors haven't got the confidence to go and invest because investors are very, they, you know, they want to see the market going up until they come back. Like, cause investors only, you know, when are investors at the highest at the peak of the market, so investors don't really invest when the market's bottoming. They just But it's chicken and egg, isn't it? Because yeah. investors are pushing the market to their peaks. And this yeah. is where APRA made their mistake is that they didn't have confidence that the market would dissipate in an orderly fashion. Mm. They because their premise was interest rates were going to rise. Well, how'd that one go, guys? Mm. Um, and therefore investors needed to be protected from well, themselves. Really and that's why obvious. they're discredited now, APRA and the Reserve Bank. ASIC and, of course, mm. the Treasury because their models all were about interest rates rising and now we've seen the sharpest cuts in our history. We see, Well, we talk about macro and micro. So, obviously, I'm on the ground. I see what's happening. Yep. Um, you know, in, in May 2016, we felt the market starting to, of its own volition, contract and then interest rates fell. Now, that was because of APRA. No, oh, well, that was the APRA been, action at the was, end of 15 because we had still... a duality of action there. It was lower... They, they increased rates for both owner-occupiers yeah. and uh, investors. But it was starting to work. But gently, it was starting to work. We just started just feeling it. But then just the next mess. thing, interest rates dropped May 2016. Well, I had to bounce it back because our again. economy. Same thing. We were headed into August. We could start to feel the wind coming out of it, you know, the wind coming out of the sale again. Same thing. It was APRA. Interest rate for well, it, and then the RBA. So it's like they're working against each other. But it was only it was really a Sydney uh, issue in terms of the significance of the downturn yep. in that mm. first uh, those first measures that those macro prudential measures taken by APRA. Uh, and I know this is not visual, but I'm really shaking my head here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I can't go too deep on this. I can't go too hard on that. But they had to uh, slow the investors down, to why? be honest, because that's, that's, the reality no, that's is... rubbish, Chris. That's complete rubbish. I mean, there's no, <laughs> there was no model for that being a necessity. Nothing other than a a a uh, fixation on rates that were going to rise. Because well, why would why would invest? That... What was happening with investors? We had well, so, a... wasn't there too high a proportion of investor? But what's borrow? too high? Well, the reality is you've got it's not everyone's in the market, right? No. And yeah. there's a lot, certain part of the population that is trying to get into the market. Yeah. And they would love to get into the market. And if they're getting, you know, basically the market's running on them, they're going to get a bit pissed off. Well, and that's so, a political issue, isn't it? But yeah. why, why, so, why not let market forces, you know, the point is that as the uh, interest rate energy that was driving prices specifically, right, and it's only about interest rates, once that started to dissipate, in other words, rates would have been on hold because they were never on hold, even though it was like, oh, rates have been on hold for a record period. No, they weren't on hold because mortgage rates were bouncing around because of those APRA actions, right? And that clearly had an impact on the housing market, right, in terms of prices growth. And they're the waves you were talking about, Veronica. They were responses to changes by the regulator to uh, the bank, the lending condition, uh, conditions, particularly invest to investors, and the and the the complete you know ridiculous nature of this was that if any market was overheating in terms of uh, investor activity, it was the Sydney market. Now, other markets had really, uh, except for Melbourne that rose uh, later in the piece, yeah. had very normal proportions of investor activity. But all investors Australia-wide were, were, uh, had to pay those higher interest rates or had the restrictive lending. 
which just really yeah, revealed the true. nonsense I, of I the whole policy. Absolutely. That's the nonsense of the whole policy. So if the major Sydney was the issue, but everybody paid the price. Yeah, yeah on yeah, their true. mortgages, yeah. Mm. But so, yeah, investors well, and actually volumes deductible. of investors as well. And, I mean, it pushed prices and volumes down. It actually reduced stamp duty takes in economies. It reduced the... Uh, the end of the economic viability of the industry, in a sense, you know, the, but the reality is investors should be paying a higher interest rate than homeowners anyway. Why? I mean, because they are higher risk to the bank, you know. Why? End of the day, but the risk, the risk fundamentals are, are, are being set in place, you know, as part of our structure of our housing market, and that's what's kept us robust and resilient. I mean, banks have, we have four banks, right? They operate as an oligopoly. Mm. They have significant market power. Now, that's a good thing because what it means is they don't have to take risks to maintain very high profits, right? Because when we have a banking or financial sector such as the US, which doesn't operate, which operates more on market forces, they then tend to move their, their parameters in terms of lending parameters as the market moves. So as the market rises, they make it easier for you to get a loan. I'd say the Aussie banks do that as well. I mean, we can already no, see no, that No, 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 not to recently. the same degree. That's why the GFC was such an issue in the housing market in the US because they were lending above 100% LVRs. They, were giving, they weren't taking any regard to income coverage because... Well, that was happening here as well. No, 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 no. Well, Absolutely well, not. Well, right now you can get a 100% loan if you yeah, want Yeah, but it. you've got to pay a lot mortgage insurance. No, there's ways to do it. Really? Can you what, tell me about that? For a first that? home buyer <laughs> or investor? For uh, home buyers. You can get a personal loan yeah, but for 10% we're talking about you can borrow the, 90%. Okay, well, whatever those circumstances are, whatever those circumstances are, it's certainly not something that in terms of prolific, the volume yes. at, of lenders would influence the dynamics of the housing market. That's why, as I said, we all have – look at the historical nature of our cycles and they're very orderly what going the, forward uh, and is, that is because of that market power because the market power of the banks allows them – to not take risk because we would take risks, which we naturally would in a rising market. And when prices started to fall through an economic shop or the normal downturn in the business cycle, we would then be exposing those people who had uh, uh, higher geared loans that didn't have the leverage in terms of the uh, So just recently the, the APRA removed their assessment rate from 7.25 oh, and yeah. said to the banks, right, so if we would say that the banks don't do things to increase credit, we would assume that the banks would have left it at 5.75%. But what uh, Westpac have just done and AMZ have done, they've made it 5.35%. So they've removed, reduced their assessment rate so people can borrow more. Another example just recently, um, you know, policies around... Well, it's, it's not working. Well, no, but it, these are... These are, these are these I are, mean, we are in a, a macroeconomic, you know, But as an corner. example, maternity leave, right? If, you know, they'll, in, a, in a downturn, they'll shut up that policy. But in, the, in when they want to lend money, they open that policy up or casual employment or foreign income or foreign investors. They'll look at ways of encouraging demand. But, but in terms of the aggregation of the market, the volumes aren't there because I believe there's this schizophrenic uh, fear of lending that's infected the banking system, which is a direct result of those actions by APRA, which have created, you know, some significant issues in terms of where our macro economy is. We left interest rates too high for too long because the RBA bought into this fundamental uh, mistaken view that we had imbalances occurring in our housing markets because of too many investors. They didn't let the wave ride itself out again. Yeah. And what's happened now is we've got nothing left to offer in terms of monetary policy. We needed to stimulate the economy two years ago when we first started to mm. see incomes growth uh, flatlining and when inflation was following that. I mean, we what haven't met the inflation. What did you think about that one coming in with removing negative gearing? Well, I'm going to be a bit controversial about this. <laughs> um, I think we would be in exactly the same position today if we had a Labor government 
than what we are, obviously, with the return of the Morrison government. We still, we had a revival in the housing market on its way already. Confidence was gradually working its way back. Mm. Of course, it's being fuelled in Melbourne and Sydney by lower interest rates. Um, Wouldn't but, that have been a big negative towards not investing into property with a higher... Well, we've income? already but got that right, anyway. But, right but we've now, already got that anyway. We've we, already got low numbers of investors and yet prices are rising. have more investors in the market now if they came into government because the investors... Would have been rushing into the market. Exactly right. So we would have had but, the flip... We would have or had the till reverse. a certain date. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But, 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 but now I, they would have given up because they can't... It, it wouldn't Christmas. have been a conversation. We would have just, it would have been completely <laughs> forgotten because the market would have been regenerating. We would be talking about the market, uh, the same sort of boom and bust nonsense, of course, that we always fixate on. Um, but um, You've got to pay more capital gains tax and you can't buy anything established. You've got to buy I something. Think, I'm talking about its material effect. Next year, yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm talking about its material effect on the market as it stands. Now, I, I, that's what I'm saying. It wouldn't have had an impact on where we would have been in exactly the same position and would have sort of forgotten about um, the issues that were were obviously being promoted as the negative issues of that negative gearing policy from the ARP. I mean, it's interesting to see whether they'll actually go with it next time because it was clearly a political sop to those that are, you know, concerned mm. about, you know, this ongoing, you know, uh, urban myth of, you know, housing market imbalance and affordability, but uh, that's another story. But I think one of the You don't other... think it's harder for kids today to get in the market than it was 30 years ago? Well, 30 years ago, when I got into the market oh, for the first no. time, I had to pay a 40% deposit. Try saving 40%. Now you can get they in with 5%. Yeah, the that's thing, right. The and I are. And I had to, you know, I had to be... That was, only one okay. that was only one, one because prices were four times income, right? Yeah. The 40% is 1.5 times your income, right? I bought with a 5% deposit nearly 30 yeah. years ago. So well, who did you know? Your dad you? was a banker. Where did you go? I'm Wealth Bank. No, no, that's all right. Well, I don't know. As I said, it was, uh, it was a lot tougher then. But look, the whole point is uh, the aspiration for home ownership remains as strong as ever for mm. all the, the sort of – we've actually had a real surge in first-home buyer activity across the board since uh, interest rates start to fall. And that's mm. no surprise because uh, higher prices are poison to first-home buyers. Mm. I mean, first-home buyers ignore the affordability issues. They ignore the better-to-rent to buy. They completely ignore all the commentary out there. Good luck to them and more power to them mm. uh, unless they listen to me. But um, – uh, and they're moving back into the market in waves now because mm. they understand that it's still an affordable market because prices in Sydney and Melbourne are still uh, five or six percent below their previous so peaks. That's, that's got, what's driving the market at the moment. It's catch-up mode. You don't think that's got anything to do with the fact that there are less investors in the market? Well, it certainly helps that competition factor, mm. but there's no doubt that first-home buyers are just buying that they can buy. Well, yeah. And the other point is that we're going to have um, – this new policy, which I think will have a bigger material effect than the uh, negative gearing uh, on the market. Absolutely. But it's only uh, 10,000 people. Um, only. Yeah. Uh, well, there's 100,000. Well, that's in a year. We've got a month here. There's 10%. You think that, that's 10 mean, percent of, 10 of, 10 of first home buyers who buy the current are actually going to be able to. So you potentially could increase first home buyers 10%. Hmm. And so it's not. In a that, month. No, 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 it's over a year. But it's going to be in a month because this is FOMO working at its best. <laughs> this is the first home buyer lottery. Have you seen the limits on it? Yeah, well, yeah. have you seen the limits on it? What's that going to buy you in Sydney? 700 grand. Yeah, uh, well, Sydney. I'll go through the suburbs because I've just done a piece for Channel 9 yesterday yeah. on this whole so issue. Want, and rule out new apartments because first home buyers are finally... It's be established. They can't buy off the plan, but they can buy that. new. But let's say, let's say they don't want to buy anything that's been built in the last 20 years. Why would they? they but, but they're buying them now. Well, because... Oh, they're, they're buying actually, them now. 
coming away from it? I do a lot of talks for first home buyers and it's interesting. I used to always ask the question, so who's thinking about buying new and half the room would always put their hand up. And now I say, who's interested Who's interested in buying brand new? Not one person put their hand well, up. Well, if you buy new, you can buy in Piermont, Waterloo, uh, Zetland. Not for uh, 700. Yes, you can. Oh, for, well, yeah, Zetland, yeah, but you, they know Piermont, that. Piermont, Waterloo. But, but they're switching uh, on to supply issues. I understand. Bladesville. But why would you buy in Zetland a new apartment? Because it's a house, it's a home, and you don't have to pay mortgage insurance. Hey, mum, give us an extra 20 grand. I'm going to miss it. What will but happen? That apartment was 900 two years ago. Well, that's right. So that's even better. That's why they're moving in because it's going to be 900 in a year's time. No, right? they realise it's is not it? a great investment. <laughs> so it won't be. So prices not necessarily. Are, supply. You look in. It, supply is collapsed. You know this. Look at look at the the resale prices of new apartments in Melbourne and Brisbane because that space they've been ahead of us exactly, in terms yeah. of oversupply of new stock. No so, oversupply. I mean Brisbane now. <laughs> Brisbane unit prices are rising by two percent a quarter at okay. the moment. Can we Vacancy rates are falling. Out, can we separate out new first time resale of a new property yeah. versus the existing market and versus settlements on brand new? We yeah. have to separate all of that out. Yeah, and yeah. When you pull out that data and you look at Brisbane and Melbourne, in, in fact, there's quite a lot of data around this. Um, Biz, Biz, Biz Oxford have done quite a lot. Um, oh, there we go. Well, no, <laughs> Did you say Biz or BS? BIS. BIS. <laughs> um, they report they are recording the, the losses on resale and the percentage of uh, the, the, the kings of oversupply. Yeah, well, this the issue is, yes, there's oversupply, but B. No, there's not. Well, okay. there's, there's, let's say there is market supply, but it's, it's the pri what pushes stock. prices up is undersupply. And so, if you can, if you're you're buying an investment and you can keep building more of them, what happens is, is as soon as there's more demand, there's more supply. So with apartments, just generally, you know, looking at places like Waterloo or Zetland, yep. if there's more demand, there's more supply. If there's more demand, there's more supply. Yeah, but there's a lag between demand and supply in the apartment market of around three years, and that's the issue now that we've got peak supply now because it was based on or was built based on demand dynamics three years ago. Now, what's happening in terms of demand dynamics now, particularly over the last 12 months, is building has stopped. And, of course, finance is very difficult for developers it's to get. True, so in the next three when, years, we're going to run out of stock in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. And developers can, are pushing themselves <laughs> to the limits to find sort of sites now. boring and it's... it's, it's oh, to you, it's, maybe, Veronica. But for a first-time buyer that can move out of home or don't have to well, rent they anymore... No, 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 they want a red brick, though, now. Hear me out, though. The thing is, though... You've, you've got a situation when the rest of M Melbourne was booming, you've got properties losing money in these sorts of buildings. They're losing money for who? I mean, Melbourne has, the first time Melbourne has, has the first six or seven percent apartment <laughs> yields at the moment, and they have queues of people looking to rent How do you them. get a high yield through falling prices? And that's well, through higher rents. Well, the, no, no the it's through higher rents. Yes, they have. In Melbourne Brisbane rents have written eight percent in the last year in apartments. But you, I mean, there's queues of people looking to, particularly in those areas which aren't that attractive for owner occupiers like Docklands and Southbank, uh, are very attractive for uh, particularly students that move. And these are small apartments which they get five or six hundred bucks a week for. Pretty sure you can look at any building in Docklands, any new building in Docklands, and you'll you look at the price growth on that building. No empty ones. And they will price of those would have gone flat for about fifteen years. There's no empty ones. But who cares if it's got well, a the investor? It. Uh, the you landlord cares if it's empty. The you want it to go up in value. Growth. Yeah, but, but you, good you're property not, does. You're not going to get rich on an extra hundred bucks a week. Well, good properties, good properties <laughs> never empty. 
but this is the whole point it's of like property, and that's what I'm saying. The end of the boom and bust mantra is that we're not going to be, you know, salivating over capital growth anymore. It will be about return on investment yeah, because at the moment return on investment is going to in the future be be zero. So uh, certainly, risk free investment is zero. Is going to become even more important in your exactly. asset selection because as you get more and more this homogenous stock, that they're, they're not scarce, and that's why you're not looking at any growth. So, but we can only get growth through interest rate changes. This is what I'm saying. You can't. Well, wage you can't. To a certain you can't. Portion. Whatever your data is talking about, individual property uh, sales and the difference between their peaks and troughs. It's all about interest rates and the economy that will drive that. And we still have very strong migration. Um, you know, and that's a key driver of the uh, of the market. Now we're talking about first time buyers. Get back to that. Um, so in January we've got this, and people say, "Oh, it's only ten thousand." Well. If we cut down our first home buyer numbers on a state-by-state basis, you'll get around 3,000 in Melbourne and, or Victoria and 3,000 uh, in New South Wales. Now, most of them in New South Wales will be looking towards Sydney. Now, you know, you'll get most of those, in my opinion, will come in in January. So you've got potentially an extra 3,000 sales happening at the beginning of this year at, or next year at least no into the market. Well, they, there is stock because those developers that have got completed properties are now, and I'm part of what's, you know, be, looking at them. Salivating. Oh, the well, they've they certainly got to buy a pool that's a lot higher than what it was because this is the issue. If you don't get your 5% approved um, scheme, uh, you have to wait another year. And in that year, uh, I'll go here if apartment prices aren't higher in 2021 than they are in 2020. And I'm happy to Even take a wager on that. Issues. I'll well, take a wager okay. on that. Are we going to put that in the in the, uh, <laughs> in the full forecast report? We'll, we'll see whether you're right or not. Okay, so if they go up in January and then they're going to decline all year until Why? the next January? Because markets are still well, under, as you said so rightly, that, that could the, the <laughs> they're all gone. Well, it, and that's the point that you're going to see those first home buyers having to be even more motivated to get into the market because prices have risen again. As I said, we're but, seeing that now because there's nothing that motivates a first home buyer. Mo- well, you, no, you won't. You'll see continued growth. But obviously, there'll be demand well, brought be forward growth? because we have higher prices and higher prices will motivate first home buyers. Now, not only will we see that bounce in activity, it will mean higher prices, but it'll mean higher prices because of that $700,000 ceiling in particular market areas. Now, you tell me whether a first home buyer would be more interested. Where can you get a, a house for $700,000 in Sydney? Oh, no, not an area that I've Well, within 40 kilometres. Mm. I'll make it easy for you. Norellan. Norellan. Is that it? Uh, I, I, I don't must, think... No, I, I, I thought, don't you ever ask a question without knowing the answer? No, but I, I would have thought, uh, <laughs> you know, house and land Campbelltown. Our house and land package is on the fringes, but they were 950. Yeah, but they, young first-home buyers, or not-so-young first-home buyers, don't want to have a two-hour commute into the city or to the night spots or to the beach or whatever... They want to be able to jump on the train in Zetland and mm. get in there. Like, and they're going to pay seven. They'll pay seven hundred. They'll pay. Don't you worry about that. So on the front page of the SMA page today <laughs> yeah. is building issues. On yeah. the mm. last December, Opal Tower, Mascot Tower, yep. Zetland. Yep. The you know I deal a lot with first home buyers. Yep. And you know three four years ago, if we talked about buying a new apartment versus an old apartment, they were completely oblivious to the risks mm. of buying Absolutely. new versus old. Yep. Today, because it's been in the news now for two or three years, settlement risk was not even a heard of term two or three years ago. But well, now, is there settlement risk now? Well, yeah, hundred percent. Look, well, at, that's look another at, furphy that we've revealed 40, this year. Is well, where's, a, what's happened? Broker, all the settlement risk. As a broker, I've seen it. 
Well, it's how many? Of the prices they well, I don't pay. do anything off the plant space, but I've seen clients, for <laughs> example, in Kirawee, paid eight seventy. We got a valuation at seven fifty. Did they settle? Yes. Well, there you go. Where's but, the risk? Well, well, for them, <laughs> they wouldn't have been able to settle if they didn't have one hundred and fifty grand. Well, but they settled. Yeah, but they've paid. Wasn't it the more fact that they the couldn't settle? Is, they but, could resell yeah, okay. today. But but they may pay. They may have the property valued you know, at they its got previous. Their money? They got the money from their parents. So well, th- th- but that they was settled. The risk. Well, they would well, have where's the risk? What, where, what are we the talking about is here? That they now now have isn't the risk that they can't settle? They owe more money on that asset than the thing. But could that's be not settlement. Well, they risk. could risk. It's still that's risk. just. But but it's only value in terms of when you realise the property. Correct. Another example: client in ride. What yeah. if they sell in five years' time and it's sold and for a million? May but for well example, sell for less again. Who knows? Why would it sell for less? Because interest rates would rise. <laughs> what stats? Because. History, if we look at yeah, but why what has we look, happened. But, but we've never had interest rates at zero and not had inflation yeah, not, rising. That is actually not the point in this it's case. It's the absolute point it's because that's what drives house prices. Well, yes, but it might drive It's not a magic prices. point. Well, that's it's what we're talking about, isn't it? All prices. Yes, it in, is. In yes, it will. <laughs> and when we run out of apartments in 12 okay. months' time, so we're still getting 60,000 net migrants into New South Wales every year. How can this data coincide? How can it sit side by side? And it does. Where's the data from? There's um, CoreLogic. Uh, I look at CoreLogic data. There was um, annualised losses. Uh, yeah, well, we know that it, because it, house it, prices are lower now than where they were at their peaks in 2017. No, no, no. So That's why Brisbane, pro- yeah, 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 they are. in Brisbane City Council <laughs> where the a unit yeah. price fell. Yeah. Over a ten-year period, well, what's the up point? to two thousand eighteen. What's the point? The point being, Just don't buy these apartments. That, but why not? But why not buy them when prices are lower? Because prices <laughs> will be higher. More supplies coming. Yes, but there's not more supply coming. Well, the supply has be... collapsed in the Brisbane market. But you've got, you yeah, want some real people... stats? You get on a Spruker website. There is plenty of stuff <laughs> I being flogged. Some spruking here. <laughs> what are we spruking? Though? <laughs> the downside. Huh? No, we're do- the, we can the show you the stats of brand the new apartments is absolutely quantifiable. But you can see if you I look don't know at how you can not even acknowledge I it. I said that we're at peak supply now, okay, in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane, although Brisbane is a past. Um, but what we're seeing for the future is a significant downturn in new development. And this is what's going to push our unemployment rate over 6%. Yep. This is another factor because we don't have anywhere to generate the jobs that we did post the uh, end of the mining boom in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne through the apartment boom, right? Yeah. So the government would like nothing better to see more apartments being built. Would. And they're concerned that apartments aren't being built now. The developers have left the field. Um, and savvy developers are looking at sites now uh, to try to... Uh, uh, you know, restock the market when it will need it in two or three years' time, perhaps sooner. Mm. I'm going to come back here in a couple of years, and we'll be talking about some other issue. I because don't think we will. I think we will. Why would we will be talking about silo markets? We'll be talking about that market there underperforming, no. and that market there. We've next never to seen it. That. buildings that yes, have been built. Seen when? That. when have we seen that? We have seen it in Melbourne with Docklands and Southbank. But Docklands is not. There's nothing empty in Docklands. It does, but Whether it's what empty the price or not. But isn't that the point? It's it's no, providing it's a roof over the head to somebody. No, the point we're talking no, about. You're an investor. You're an investor. You want return. And if but you who can't... said that? But if you're an investor if and getting a six percent return, and you are not looking for capital growth, you're an idiot. You should be going and investing and but getting advice from like a finance. This sounds like spruiking to me. No way. Go yes, to it a is. Is this boom and bust? How can this be spruiking? Because when... you're spruiking capital growth. Because you're spruiking hotspots. Because you're spruiking. No, I'm not. Because you're. Hotspots. Well, you are. But that's capital growth. You're saying that no, if you no, don't no, get no, capital no, no, growth, I am looking for sustained capital growth. That's what you're going to get in the future. But it's not going to be double figures. It's going to be. Two to three percent going forward, so and that's because that every single property is in Sydney, for argument's sake, is going to of course not. continue to grow. Well, you can't aggregate 
decisions that are made by buyers and sellers at the ground level. I mean, that's nonsense because we don't know what the agenda of the buyer or the agenda mm. of the seller is. Yeah. Any sort of market insight or economic insight into the housing market has to aggregate data because at the ground- You don't buy the aggregate, you buy individual no, no, properties. No, no, Of course. Well, I'm not here as, a, as, as somebody who's promoting an individual property or motivations mm. for individual buyers if and sellers. But I'm here to- yeah, Hang on. I'm here to uh, <laughs> reveal what the white noise or the lack of white noise in the market is. So- Are you- a bull? No, I'm see, a bull or a bear is an optimist or a pessimist, correct? Mm. But well, you, I'm you a realist. You sound a because, little bit optimistic. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm just always right. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, first, it's probably in super. So you're going to get tax-free returns there. Take it out of super to buy a residential property. You would be, A, then you're going to pay tax on all the income and all the growth. Like that just, to me, that just doesn't make sense. If it's not in super, well, yeah, you can invest it in lots of different ways. You can Where? buy commercial property. You can buy well, that's, international that's, shares. Shares. shares, international shares. So you're an advocate for the share market. I mean, you understand how that could Australia. You not be an advocate for the share market. We I'll tell you how. We, society, well, if you society. let me answer, I'll tell you how. Um, our share market is now back to its peaks of 2007. Correct. So we're now reaching where we were 12 years ago, prior to the GFC. If you look, if you're talking I haven't about finished. ASX, ASX I haven't finished. Number, I haven't finished. I haven't finished. Number though. I haven't finished. I haven't finished. So, of course, the big uh, the big uh, drive now, I guess, given the the end of ta- of risk free uh, money, which is the bank, um, is looking at higher yielding shares, blue chip shares, right? And in that period over the last twelve years, where our market struggled to get back to where it's it was yeah. then, we've seen uh, stock markets in uh, other advanced economy, Wall Street, of course, uh, UK and, and yeah. the eurozone, have doubled or even tripled. So the point is, yes, you can get a, a good return, six, seven percent, perhaps in a blue chip, uh, a blue chip stock, but the, it's then exposed to the vagaries of the international economy and certainly international uh, stock market activity. Yep. Now, uh, if there was ever to be a significant correction, it would come from markets that are certainly at a lot higher in terms of their growth, such as Wall Street. Yep. And you can bet your bottom dollar that if Wall Street had a significant correction that uh, the uh, Australian share market would follow it down. Yeah. It hasn't followed it up, but it'll follow it down. Yeah. That's one thing to say, well, I can get my great 6% result or 5% yield uh, from a blue chip stock. But when the value of that capital is at risk from the vagaries of the international economy, I think that those that are looking for more of a reliable return uh, on their investment would certainly be more inclined to be uh, involved in a, a small-scale property investment uh, become small-scale landlords because there's not the same exposure to international forces. And no. you just wait for that next Definitely correction to come. Well, there's always you. stock market yeah, crashes. We have to wrap this there's up. There's always but stock market look. crashes. But <laughs> when was the last one? Well, 2008, 2009. Yeah, and well, that's the, so when we... 12 we, years, yeah. Yeah, and we haven't recovered from it. Well, if you invested in international shares 12 years ago... Plus the, you know, the gearing impact. So you'd say that the risk is still the so same as it was in 2008. You don't, you don't you think that there's at, a risk of a If you're 65, you're going to live for another 20 years to say that you're not going to invest in international shares the next 20 years because, you know, we were living in a capitalist society. To assume that property is the only investment class that no, is ever I'm, good I'm to... I'm saying that there'll be a whole uh, different cohort of investors that wouldn't have thought of themselves as small-scale uh, property owners, landlords, that will start to look at the next... Once uh, cash is uh, uh, off the table because of low interest rates, zero interest rates, they'll start to look at, uh, particularly given that there is this mindset that bricks and mortar safe as houses, they'll start looking at becoming small scale investors. Whether that's a good decision or not, it's up to them. But but it's only part of their, but I'm not saying, well, they might have international shares as well. But the point is, it's part of their portfolio that will give them a return that they don't have. I mean, one of the great problems we have in our economy now. Um, and why our unemployment rate is uh, is not rising is our participation rate is increasing because a lot of uh, older Australians now are being pushed back into the workforce because they don't have the incomes to support themselves. Or the Those, equity or the cash. Well, they don't have the incomes, so they have to get another job, and that's what we're going to see more of. cash left. But that's what we're that's going to see more on. But we guess we're going to see more of. It's income. So the ABS data that was released was very sobering yesterday. You have enough cash, you'd live off your cash, but you haven't got enough Where cash. Where would you put your cash? But you'd have enough, if you had a million dollars in cash, Where you'd would live you, off it. What, at no percent on in the bank? 
Not in no percent. Well, 70, 65 year old and got the money in the bank. But where would they put their money? They've That's had their the money point. invested. It's but, still invested. But the point is there's no returns anymore. This is a low-yield macroeconomic economic Super's ice age. Super's been growing at 10% for the last six years. And will it grow at 10% we for the next? We don't know, do I we? do. I can tell you it won't because <laughs> so it will if, reflect the economic it, – it's reflected what's happened in our stock market. So if, there's, if there's an international stock market crash – Yes. Right, which is what you're saying. There'll no, I'm not. I'm saying that the potential is more for an international crash than for an Australian if, crash because what caused we've that? seen because we get, we get international recession, right? Well, no. Right. Andrew's well, saying that we should have Russian. Be- but if there's an international recession, there won't be a recession. Why I mean, is the stock, stock market going to crash? Because of sentiment, because of being oversold, because returns for investors are lower there on the stock market because it's been overbought, right? So a correction is about selling in markets that are overbought. I'm now, pretty, I'm pretty sure 2001 was a recession when the stock market crashed. 2008 was a recession. 1988, seven was a recession. They're all recessions that have been correlated to the stock market crashes. But recessions mainly are, are issues about sentiment anyway. I mean, we're not going to – that was the other furphy that we were discussing, of course, the next cab off the rank about three months ago was Australia moving into recession. Uh, you know, it sort of joins a long list of furphies well, if we such, as, uh, people, we would be such a settlement risk and all those sort of things. But um, – uh, <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's wrap this up because our listeners will be <laughs> turning their heads. But um, um, really Andrew, appreciate your time, Andrew. We do appreciate your your, your time, your your verve, That's and your right. passion. Well, now you know why I've never lost an argument, so uh, I guess it's in you real never time. Get, you never give anyone a chance to argue back. That's no, all right. Rightio, thank you. That's all right. It's good to lose an argument. <laughs> We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... (laughs) What can I say after that interview? Um, Well, I I tell you what... I've heard Dr. Andrew Wilson talk at a number of events over the years and I've always thought of him as particularly bullish uh, about property. And, of course, many years ago, before I know what I know now, I, I thought that was a really good thing. After this interview, I'm actually I'm a bit speechless, to be quite frank, because he's more bullish than I thought was possible. So boot camp this week is avoid bulls and bears. You know, he's very anti the bears. The bears are all those people basically that were crying that the property market was overvalued and going to drop 40%, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to avoid bulls too because he, he basically said you can't go wrong with property. He also basically said it's the only investment vehicle. He completely failed to acknowledge that putting all your eggs in one basket is highly risky. And there was sort of this inference that if you didn't buy a property, you would put all of your money in international shares for argument's sake, or you might put it all in Australian shares. And I think that's one of the benefits of looking holistically at different investment options is why we recommend talking to financial planners as well as property experts. Because if you don't buy a good asset in property, you are foregoing opportunity in a whole range of other areas. And so if you don't buy property, if you choose to diversify amongst a bunch of different types of investment vehicles, you've got other options and and multiple options. So that's one of the downsides of investing in property. One of the upsides that we often talk about is, is you get to leverage, which means you get to borrow money, which means you've got more skin in the game. So once again, there's risk associated with borrowing. So the asset assessment that you, or the asset that you choose to buy is, it's really important. You're careful with that. So I guess our boot camp here is that, yeah, avoid bulls. Avoid bulls at all cost because there is enormous risk at buying property and it pays to be very careful 
about your decisions. Join us for our next episode when we are having basically one big elephant rider boot camp. And what is it? We are going to learn about making decisions under pressure. When we are under pressure, such as a rising property market or at auction, or the agent tells you that there's another offer on the table, all these things that trigger us into, I guess, freaking out a little bit and not necessarily making our best decisions. So we're talking with leadership coach Jackie Pollock, and she is has come up with a a model that she's going to share with us that explains what's going on when we feel under pressure and we're not at our best and not likely to make our best decisions and three steps that we can take to actually get ourselves into a better decision-making frame of mind. It's really fascinating and we hope you can join us. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.